Ahlan wa sahlan, dear listener. I'm Michael Rakowitz, artist and director of Radio Silence, a broadcast about Iraq and its displacements presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia with major support from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage and additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hummingbird Foundation. Project collaborators include the Prometheus Radio Project, as well as many agencies and nonprofits that work on refugee and veteran issues and community media. Radio Silence is made in collaboration with the vibrant Iraqi community of Philadelphia and Iraq War veterans who are part of Warrior Writers, a Philadelphia-based community of military service members, artists, allies, and healers dedicated to creativity and wellness. Bajat al-Dawahid, dubbed the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife, Haifa Abdul-Qadr, also a broadcaster, arrived as refugees in the city of brotherly love in 2009. The program became a portrait of Iraq in miniature as Bajat fell ill with a serious respiratory ailment after our first recording session, necessitating an emergency tracheostomy. The voice of Iraq lost its voice. Months later, Bajat Abdul-Wahed passed away. Our host has become a ghost, another casualty of the war. At his funeral, Bajat's friends spoke about how our project was even more important now. The show must go on, they insisted, to illustrate just how much of the country was slipping away, to resist cultural amnesia, to hold on to the best of what Iraq was, and what their new lives as Americans would be. And so we begin episode six. The censored, the forbidden, the disappeared. We are in Bajat and Haifa's living room in northeast Philadelphia in January 2016. Haifa tells a joke about Iraqi television, which alludes to the extensive surveillance by the government of its citizens during Saddam Hussein's regime. We have uh, two channels, mm. seven and nine. Seven to a day, okay. nine to Saddam. Mm. Everybody know that. Yeah. When sometimes we open the television, we say, we will go to seven, we see something. They say, they make a joke for this. They say that if you turn the channel from nine to seven, you will see Saddam tell you, go to the nine. Go to the nine. Go back. Go back to nine. Bajat then tells a very different story from a very different period of Iraq's history, during the regime of General Abdel Karim Qasem, who overthrew the monarchy and was beloved by Iraq's working class. Before 45 years ago, we have a prime minister. Abdel Karim Qasem is very good, popular leader in all the people. Sometimes he visits... Bakery? Mm. Bakery. He saw his picture on the wall. Yeah, this is a good story. He, sure. he came to the worker there, said to him, make my picture small and make the bread big, because people will, will uh, not be angry. That is very, very good. He is very clever. In 1959, the CIA under Eisenhower authorized the assassination of Abdel Karim Qasim. The plot failed when the gunman, Saddam Hussein, lost his nerve and misfired. When Qasim was finally killed in a Ba'ath Party coup in 1963, 
Saddam returned to Iraq to help massacre suspected communists. The man installed in Qasim's place, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr, gave up his presidency to Hussein in 1979. A CIA memo sent to President Kennedy after the coup concluded that the assassination was, quote-unquote, undoubtedly a gain for our side. After his execution, reports circulated in Baghdad that Qasim's face could be seen on the moon. The Western policy of regime change in Iraq thus has a long history. The latest attempt, the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, resulted in millions of disrupted and discontinued Iraqi lives. This loss is mirrored in the destruction of Iraq's cultural heritage, carried out in the looting of the Iraq Museum in April 2003, and continuing until this day with archaeological sites plundered and destroyed by ISIS. The insatiable global appetite for Mesopotamian cultural heritage fueled the looting. And for many Iraqis, the liquidation of the objects of the past was seen as a way to ensure their futures in affording their ticket out of the country. Dr. Dani Georgiou Khanna served as president of the Iraq State Board of Antiquities and Heritage and director general of the National Museum in Baghdad. In the aftermath of the museum's looting, he worked tirelessly to help recover some 50% of missing items. However, because the museum continued to be a soft target for insurgents, international policing agencies from Kuwait and Iran to Japan, Italy, and the U.S., initially retained any confiscated museum objects. To this day, some items are kept abroad because, like the people displaced from Iraq, it is too dangerous for them to go home. As reporters followed him through the museum, winding past shattered vitrines and smashed artifacts that were too large for looters to carry, Dr. George made sure to counter the way the Western media had established the narrative in Baghdad as a city divided along religious and sectarian lines. Indeed, it was not just history and artifacts that needed to be salvaged, but the dignity and humanity of the Iraqi people. We always live together in this country. I have neighbors, Muslims, Shiites, Sunnis. We go to their houses, they come to our houses, we dine together, you know, just like families, good friends, always good Iraqi friends. They are Muslims, they go to mosques. We are Christians, we go to church. So it's normal, we live together. All my staff us are Muslims, so they love me, I love them. There's, there's no, this, we don't have this kind of separation. No, this is something everybody should know. Under Saddam Hussein, Dr. George took part directly in archaeological excavations in order to avoid Ba'ath Party meetings. He circumvented what he hated by doing what he loved. Dr. George also sidelined as a drummer in a band called 99%, short for 99% of excellence, that specialized in covers of Deep Purple and Pink Floyd songs. Deep Purple Smoke on the Water recalls a disastrous fire during a 1971 Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention concert at a casino in Montreux, Switzerland. A fan shot a flare gun inside the venue. A fire ensued, and the entire building was destroyed. Members of Deep Purple watched the events unfold across Lake Geneva in a mobile studio 
on loan from the Rolling Stones. After receiving a letter with a bullet enclosed from extremists who threatened to harm his family if a ransom was not paid, Dr. George resigned his post, fleeing to Syria in August 2006. The letter. The exact same kind of letter Bajad and Haifa would receive a year later, threatening their lives if they did not leave. Like Bajad and Haifa three years later, Dr. George arrived in the United States. In December 2006, he accepted a position as a visiting professor in the Department of Anthropology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Ahlan wa sahlan, Dr. George. Shortly after his arrival, my exhibition, titled The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, opened in New York City. The ongoing project is an intricate narrative about the artifacts stolen from the National Museum of Iraq during the 2003 U.S. invasion, including colonial history, related events, and unexpected protagonists. The centerpiece is an ongoing series of sculptures that attempts to reconstruct, life-size, the 7,000-plus looted archaeological artifacts from Middle Eastern food packaging and Arab-American newspapers. So, while the Mona Lisa of Nimrud, an ivory head from the 8th century BCE, which suffered irreparable damage when the Iraq Museum's storerooms were flooded during the looting, is reconstructed in life-size, the materials chosen are the bright blues and reds of Lebanese olive oil soap wrappers, the foil packaging of Egyptian hookah tobacco, and the saturated yellows of chicken bouillon made for the Arab market by Western companies. Thus, the project enlists the fragments of cultural visibility of Arab communities across the United States to reconstruct fragments of things that are no longer visible. It also resists the current trend for the West to archive through 3D scans cultural heritage under threat in places like Iraq or Syria. You can 3D print an artifact, but you can't 3D print the DNA of the people who get killed along with the artifacts. Because in the end, what happens with any of these instances of libercide, burning of books, destruction of artifacts, is that the books burn and the people burn. Because of this, the artifacts need to be reconstructed as a kind of mutant now. It can't come back to you the way it is in your dreams. It has to haunt you a little bit. The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist also featured Dr. George's story rendered in drawings. Many of the artifacts that were stolen from the Iraq Museum were figurative Mesopotamian votive statues, a carved stone surrogate that was meant to be left behind by Babylonian worshippers visiting temples, praying with hands clasped in their stead after they left the sanctuary of their deities. I saw the reconstructed looted artifacts as surrogates for the looted lives of Iraqis. I was invited by a mutual friend to come meet Dr. George at a party held in his honor in February 2007. The New York archaeological community gathered at Bobby and Sam Paley's apartment in Manhattan to welcome him. But there was another reason for the gathering. Dr. George left behind in Iraq hundreds of books that aided him in his invaluable research. Each visitor was asked to buy a copy of one of those titles 
so he could repopulate his bookshelves in Stony Brook. It was beautiful and moving. Here was another surrogate in the replacement of Dr. George's books. In the initial aftermath of the looting, there was an amnesty program where looters could bring stolen goods back to the Iraq Museum. Amnesty. No questions asked. Another kind of silence. As we will soon hear, amnesty boxes were installed at coalition airbases for soldiers returning home from Iraq, allowing them to deposit artifacts, war trophies, and other contraband before boarding their flights. No questions asked. But first, we're going to listen to a story about an important historical site in Iraq that was located within the perimeters of a U.S. base, forbidding access to the Iraqis to whom it belonged. The Ziggurat of Ur, or Etemeniguru, meaning temple whose foundation creates aura, is a neo-Sumerian ziggurat in what was the city of Ur in present-day Iraq. The massive stone and mud-brick structure was built in the 21st century BCE, but had collapsed by the 6th century BCE. Its remains were excavated in the early 20th century, and under Saddam Hussein, they were encased by a partial reconstruction of the facade and monumental staircase. Jin McGill Prather was a medic who, in early February 2005, was tasked with identifying the bodies of four Iraqi detainees who died during a prison riot at Camp Buka. The next day, she departed for Talil Air Base for a day of rest and relaxation. It was there that she was first confronted with the detention of Iraqi culture within the confines of the American-led occupation. It was back in 2005. This day was nice. I was pretty relieved whenever I got to go out on another mission, kind of clear my head from what went on before. We convoyed up past al-Basra and kept on going till we got to a place called uh, Talil Air Base. We ended up going in through, you know, these gates or whatever. And uh, there was a huge, like, pyramid. Like, not really the kind you think of when you think of, like, Egypt, you know, and the Great Pyramids or whatever. Not like that. Better. This thing was massive. And it was like steps, you know, like step pyramid. It reminds me a lot of the one you see um, in person or on Ancient Aliens, if you're watching that, uh, down in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, it's a lot like that one. There was nobody around or anything. I was told, you know, go have fun, basically. I was told that we had, you know, taken the ziggurat so that, you know, generals or whatever could come through and vacation. They were allowed to, like, go out for the weekend or something, and they would come to places like this. Places like this. So there were some bones, right, when I was there that day. And I remember thinking, there's, like, no archaeologists. There's no native-looking people. All I saw was 
desert camouflage uniforms and smiles everywhere. Nobody told us not to. That's a bad excuse. My family raised me a certain way, taught me how to act. So yeah, I knew better. But at the same time, I don't know. It was war, you know? War is like its own different time, its own dimension. Only a few can see it and hear it and feel it and smell it. I took those bones. They were uh, sticking out of some, I guess, biblical brick. And I picked them up. Looked like it could have been um, part of you know, finger or toes. I'm not sure what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was human. And I put it in my pocket, right beside a piece of shrapnel that missed me one night. I didn't tell anyone. Then it came time for us to leave. I thought, I'm going to go ahead and take this with me, you know, because it was like show and tell when I get home all the different treasures I had acquired. I'm in Kuwait now, in the airport. I keep going by these red boxes everywhere. Man, they must have had them like every 10 feet. There was a red box that said amnesty. And you know, no one really tells you anything. So no one said, you know, hey... If you got any bones in your pocket, you know, you might want to put them somewhere. Can't take them on the plane. It was kind of eating at me, you know, the thought of having bones in my pocket. And in the back of my head, I think I was thinking, what would my grandma think? I took everything out of my pockets and quickly put them into the can that was hanging on the wall and I got on the plane Continuing on the subject of what leaves Iraq and what stays, we go now to activist Jawad Alamiri. Jawad, you might recall, fled Iraq after losing several family members who were active against Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist regime. Arriving in the U.S. in 1980, Jawad devoted himself to activism, working to reveal the truth of the brutality of the Iraqi government towards its own people. As Jawad explains, He came from a family of mixed background, and even though the rhetoric of the Iran-Iraq war was predicated on the Sunni and Shia divide, these differences meant nothing to his family. Uh, I come from a mix of a Shia and a Sunni, and I use a term which I don't know if anybody had used it because of the mix I come from. I use it as Sunni and Shia as a sushi. There are a lot of Iraqis who are from Baghdad who come from that mix. Of course. Yeah, so we, we don't have any 
idea of animosity, you know, despite what's going on inside Iraq. As a matter of fact, it, it brings us more to be open toward, you know, other sects because of it. Before he moved to Philadelphia, Jawad studied at the University of Toledo, Ohio. There he formed a student group comprised of fellow Iraqis. They demonstrated publicly against Saddam and his regime at high-profile locations like the United Nations headquarters in New York City. At the same time, I was with the same group of people. We call ourselves Islamic Union of Iraqi Students, IUIS. We had almost 150 people in the program. So twice a year, we used to have demonstrations, um, one in New York in front of the UN for the war that Saddam had established and killed almost one million Iraqis. And in Washington, D.C., for the commemorate the martyrdom of Ayatollah Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, who was a great philosopher and a vocal spokesman against Saddam. Him and his sister had uh, lost their life because of that. He was well known in Iraq as a great uh, uh, scholar. There was a great uh, song on his, on his martyrdom. We used to sing it when we go to the demonstrations and, and, and we used to enjoy. And I was the, I was the one who would, who would have that voice. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a song forbidden in Iraq during Saddam's rule. I asked Jawad if he would sing it for us. Tears in my eyes. So this was our slogan. We go in front of the Iraqi embassy and stand in rows, you know, with covering our face so we'll not be seen as the people who are opposing to Saddam and affecting our family. The silence, again. Songs like the one we just heard, an idea central to Jawad and his fellow countrymen's call for justice, would prove not only dangerous in Iraq, but also in the United States, as Ba'athist supporters were sent to silence them on campuses across the country. Many incidents where the Ba'athists used to come and, and uh, try to prevent us from having those uh, uh, meetings and yeah, they they don't want any person to know the truth about what's going on inside Iraq. It was, uh, you know, we were we were beaten. Wayne State University, we were only like 30, 40 of us against three hundred of them. The Iraqi embassy in in Washington, they used to um, pay tickets for those uh, Iraqi students who are on on government uh, payroll to come from different towns and and. Uh, and, and confront us and scare us. Yeah. I sat with Jawad's story playing over and over inside my head after I left his house. I thought of the government that he fled in Iraq, 
that would not have just extinguished his words, but also his life. I thought of the way in which Bajat and Haifa had been put through something similar when they were forced to flee, that devastated them not only emotionally, but in Bajat's case, also physically. When Bajat passed away, I regarded his loss as another casualty of the war. Bodies at risk are bodies under siege. What might have survived or flourished if the war hadn't happened is anyone's guess. What I do know is that neither Jawad, nor Bajat, nor Haifa, nor Dr. George chose to leave Iraq. They were forced. Dr. George. I didn't finish his story. While my exhibition of the reconstructed looted artifacts was on view in New York, he made frequent trips to see them. The gallery sent me pictures of him giving tours of the artifacts to viewers, the same way he did in Iraq before the looting, before he had to leave. Dr. George called me after one of those visits to tell me how emotional he got while gazing upon these reconstructions. This is as close as I will ever get to them again, he said. I tried to convince him that, inshallah, God willing, we will all be able to return one day and see these objects, which will have also returned. Inshallah, he answered solemnly. But I knew he wasn't convinced. In March 2011, Dr. George died of a heart attack en route from New York to Toronto between two countries and far away from home. In a memorial I wrote on the occasion of his death, I elaborated on what became a very close friendship very quickly after we met. I wrote, I only knew Dr. George for four years. It feels like I lost a family member. Maybe I see my grandfather, who fled Iraq in 1946, in him. Maybe I see the story of every Iraqi who is not at home, who is not able to return. Maybe I see a devoted husband and father who did everything he could to save his wife and children and give them a good life. Whatever it is, I feel the huge loss that his family, friends, and colleagues are feeling. And today, I said goodbye to him at his funeral here in Chicago. My last drawing from The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist featured a personal message from me to Dr. George. In pencil, I wrote the traditional Arabic greeting, Ahlan wa Sahlan, Dr. George. As many know, it is loosely translated as, may you arrive as part of the family and tread an easy path as you enter. I was thinking to close my personal remembrance of this great man with an awesome line from a Deep Purple or Pink Floyd song. Somehow, I think Dr. George would have liked that. But instead, I found sections of a fragmentary Sumerian lullaby, translated from tablets dating from 3000 BCE. Come sleep, come sleep, and you, lie you in sleep. Array the branches of your palm tree. It will fill you with joy. Stand at the side of Ur. Good night, Dr. George. I will miss you. Love, Michael. And then it happened again. 
in late August 2016, I found myself reciting that same lullaby for Bajats in a cemetery in Bucks County, outside of Philadelphia, as he was being buried. Another looted life. Another elder who could recall an Iraq not dehumanized by constant war, sectarianism, sanctions, and dissolution, but defined by love, joy, intellectualism, culture, history. Too many stories left untold. Many loved ones left behind, looking to piece back together a fragment of the life they were forced to leave behind. Good night, Bajat. I miss you. So much. That's it for today's episode. Radio Silence is curated by Elizabeth Thomas. Special thanks to our project manager, Abigail Satinsky, to our sound engineer and editor, Nate Sandberg, to Warrior Writers and their director, Lavella Kalika, to all our Iraqi participants in the resettlement agencies that connected us to them, and to Jane Golden and everyone at Mural Arts. Our deepest gratitude and love to Bajat Abdelwahed and his wife, Haifa Ibrahim Abdelkader. Original music for Radio Silence is composed by Hannah Khouri and performed with the Radio Silence Ensemble. Join us next week for our final episode when we talk about stillness and survival. Until then, good night, dear listener. For Radio Silence, I'm Michael Rakowitz, and this was Iraq.